Hello and welcome to Alice is Everywhere. My name is Heather and today we continue, yet again, our wrap-up of Lewis Carroll's masterpiece Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There. If you are tuning in for the first time and have never read Through the Looking Glass, I recommend going back 14 episodes or so and starting the book from the beginning. Or if you've never read Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, first of all, what have you been doing with your life? And secondly, rewind all the way back to episode one and give Wonderland a listen. If you do head back to episode one, I will warn you, I didn't learn about a little editing tool called Amplify until about 10 chapters in. So you may need to uh, crank up the volume for those early episodes. Last time we talked a lot about Jabberwocky and we touched upon the talking flowers in chapter two, the bizarre train journey in chapter three, and our friends the Tweedles in chapter four. Let's pick up with chapter five, Wool and Water. This is the chapter in which Alice runs into the White Queen, then suddenly finds herself in a shop with the storekeeper Sheep, then she's in a boat rowing with the Sheep, then she's back in the shop in the end. On to chapter six. I had a bit of a revelation recently, and that's not a brag because it's something I really should have noticed a lot earlier. There is a list of Dramatis Personae included with some editions of Through the Looking Glass. Dramatis Personae being the characters in a play, or in this case, novel. Looking Glass's Dramatis Personae are a little different than most because it has them listed according to their place on the chessboard so that you can see which character is which chess piece. And I just noticed for the first time that the White Queen and the Sheep are different chess pieces. Wah! The sheep is listed as a white bishop and the white queen, well, she's a white queen. My entire life, I always thought that the white queen turned into the sheep. On this very podcast, I have called her the white queen slash sheep many times, and I guess that may not be accurate. It could be accurate, but I just don't know. There being two different chess pieces suggests that maybe they are two different beings altogether. A queen turning into a sheep is certainly a very curious thing to happen, but so is a queen disappearing into midair and being replaced by a sheep, or perhaps being split into two beings, one being a sheep. Ooh, being, being, wordplay. Let's revisit the moment when the transformation occurs, shall we? I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. There goes the shawl again. The brooch had come undone as she spoke, and a sudden gust of wind blew the queen's shawl across a little brook. The queen spread out her arms again and went flying after it, and this time she, she succeeded in catching it for herself. I've got it, she cried in a triumphant tone. Now you shall see me pin it on again, all by myself. Well, then I hope your finger is better now, Alice said very politely as she crossed the little brook after the queen. Oh, much better, cried the queen, her voice rising to a squeak as she went on. Much better, 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 better. The last word ended in a long bleat, so like a sheep that Alice quite started. She looked at the queen, who seemed to have suddenly wrapped herself up in wool. Alice rubbed her eyes and looked again. She couldn't make out what had happened at all. Was she in a shop? And was that really... Was it really a sheep that was sitting on the other side of the counter? Rub as she could, she could make nothing more of it. She was in a dark little shop, leaning with her elbows on the counter, and opposite to her was an old sheep, sitting in an armchair knitting, and every now and then leaving off to look at her through a great pair of spectacles. What is it you want to buy? The sheep said at last, looking up for a moment from her knitting. 
Okay, I went back a little further than I needed to just because I wanted to remind you guys that it is the White Queen who says the very famous quote, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. I feel like she doesn't get enough credit for that. So Alice and the Queen crossed a brook. So that means Alice advanced a square, and things tend to get weird when she advances a square. Now reading the description of Alice looking at the Queen and rubbing her eyes, it certainly seems like a transformation has taken place which would support my long-held notion that the queen and the sheep are one and the same. But it occurs to me that when Alice runs into the queens later on, neither Alice nor the white queen mentions the shop or the boat ride. There's no, oh, hey, haven't seen you since that crazy sheep thing happened. Remember that? Remember turning into a sheep? There's not anything a tad more subtle either. Maybe the boat ride is a dream within a dream, and now Alice doesn't remember dreaming it. It makes one giddy. If you don't have the book in front of you, which, you know, you probably don't, the little dots that show Alice advancing a square happen twice in this chapter. Once when she and the queen cross the brook, the dots do not happen again until the very end of the chapter, when she advances to Humpty Dumpty Square. In between, when she suddenly finds herself in a boat, sliding along between banks, there are no dots. She did not advance a square at that particular moment, which makes the transformation to a ruminant all the stranger. Oh my gosh, what if when you are in a brook, it's like a break from reality? Or a break from dream reality, I guess. You cross a brook, then fine, you're in the next square. But if you are actually in the brook, like when Alice is paddling through it with the sheep, you're in some sort of crazy in-between world? I don't know. I thought I was onto something there. Maybe I'm not. We discussed John Lennon's connection to wool and water in great detail back when we read the chapter. The only other chapter five note I wanted to bring up, there is a book called A Handbook of the Literature of C.L. Dodson by Sidney Herbert Williams and Faulkner Madden. And how cool is the first name Faulkner? The book is from 1931 and it is $120 used on Amazon. So the chances of it coming into my possession are slim. Ooh, but I bet it's at the Cassidy Collection at USC. I'll have to check that out the next time I go. Anyway, I bring the handbook up because, according to the annotated Alice, the handbook has a photo of a shop that was located in Oxford, specifically at 83 St. Elgitz Street, if anyone is hanging out at Oxford anytime soon. And John Tunniel's illustration of the sheep's shop is a faithful representation of the real shop except... The door and shop window are reversed because we're in looking glass land. Awesome. The real life shop is apparently where the real Alice Little would purchase her comfits and puddings and other weird Victorian treats. And now, according to Wikipedia, it's called Alice's Shop and you can buy all kinds of Wonderland trinkets and souvenirs. And someday, when I make my pilgrimage to Oxford, this tourist trap will be my very first stop. And I will go in and take a picture of me leaning with my elbows on the counter, just like the Tenniel illustration of our girl Alice. Not sure where I'll get a giant sheep, though, to sit on the other side of the counter. There's probably sheep wandering through town, right? If Thomas Hardy books have taught me anything, it's that there is no dearth of sheep wandering around Great Britain. Chapter 5 ends with Alice agreeing to buy an egg from the mystery sheep, and as she walks through the shop to retrieve it, the shop gets more and more wooded. She has to cross a brook, and voila, she is in Humpty Dumpty Square. Now on the Dramatis Personae, Humpty Dumpty is a red bishop. So his being on the other team might explain why he is so very contrary towards Alice, but it may not, as the sheep, 
a white bishop was not particularly helpful to her, right? And the Red Queen actually gave her instructions in the second chapter on how to advance through the board and become queen, which was quite helpful despite her rather stern demeanor. So whether a character is a chess piece on Alice's side or not does not seem to have too much bearing on whether they are nice to her or not. I know I keep promising an all-chess episode to try to figure out if Through the Looking Glass really and truly works as a chess problem. I'm saying chess problem instead of game because that is how Lewis Carroll referred to it. I swear an all-chess episode is still in the works. I'm trying to get a friend who actually knows chess to help me and actually be a guest on the podcast. He's a busy fellow. He works on Dancing with the Stars, but hopefully we can figure out a time to do that very soon. And that wasn't some weird tease. He's not like one of the dancers or anything. (laughs) He's one of the many hundreds of fine people behind the scenes that make TV magic happen. Boy, it struck me once again, rereading this chapter, how funny Humpty Dumpty is. I need to rewatch the Paramount Alice in Wonderland movie from 1933 because W.C. Fields plays Humpty Dumpty, and I bet that is hilarious. It also occurred to me how good Alice is at retaining poetry that's recited to her. Humpty tells her a typically nonsensical verse about sending messages to fishes, apparently because he wants to eat them, shades of the walrus and the carpenter. They refuse to come by, understandably, as they are snug in bed. Humpty goes to wake them up with a corkscrew. How a corkscrew works into all this, we probably don't want to know. So this is chapter six. When Alice runs into the queens in chapter nine, the white queen creepily talks to herself, as she is wont to do, and rather ominously says, Humpty Dumpty saw it too. He came to the door with a corkscrew in his hand. And Alice immediately perks up and says, oh, I know what he came for. He wanted to punish the fish. I originally started talking about this because I thought it was odd that Alice remembered such a small detail, but really what is far odder is that Humpty Dumpty, in real life, or as real as life gets in Looking Glass Land, showed up at the White Queen's house with a corkscrew looking to unleash fury on a bunch of fish that weren't there. So I guess Humpty wasn't really reciting a verse to Alice, he was explaining something that really happened, and the White Queen was somehow involved? Curiouser and curiouser. When Alice takes her leave of the Eggmeister, there are no dots. She does not advance a square. So I guess that means that all those folks she runs into in Chapter 7, after she hears the loud crash that is most certainly Humpty Dumpty taking his great fall, all those characters, the king, the lion, the unicorn, Hatta, Hayer, they are all hanging out either in Humpty Square or maybe the square is surrounding Humpty Square. As for who's who, chess-wise, the White King is the White King. Hatta and Hare are white pawns, just like Alice. The lion is a red rook or castle, and the unicorn is a white knight. Now, there is an entire chapter dedicated to the other white knight, but each side in chess has two knights, right? They each have two little horsies, and oh my god, why am I still trying to talk about chess when I know nothing about it? Two little horsies. For this entire episode, I'm looking at the list of Dramatis Personae and comparing it to my little magnetic learn-to-play chess travel kit because I don't even know how to line up the pieces. I've taken this kit on every trip I've been on for the last six years, incidentally, and I've yet to take it out once. Oh wait, that's not true. Once I opened it 
and took out the pieces and put them on the tray table on a plane. But then I thought about how gross and germy tray tables are and how horrible it would be if one of the pieces fell on the floor and I had to go rummaging around for it amongst strangers' feet and use Kleenex and God knows what else is on the floor of a jumbo jet. So I immediately put it away for another day, which never came. Now, when we first read chapter seven, The Lion and the Unicorn, I did not discuss something that is repeated throughout the chapter. It's a rather glaring omission, and I didn't talk about it, mostly because I don't quite understand it, but I'm going to attempt to talk about it now, and that is the repeated use of the term Anglo-Saxon. The first time it is mentioned is when the White King and Alice catch a glimpse of Hare, our old friend March Hare, traipsing down the road. And I quote, I see nobody on the road, said Alice. I only wish I had such eyes, the king remarked in a fretful tone, to be able to see nobody. And at that distance, too, why, it's as much as I can do to see real people by this light. All this was lost on Alice, who was looking intently along the road, shading her eyes with one hand. I see somebody now, she exclaimed at last, but he's coming very slowly. And what curious attitudes he goes into, for the messenger kept skipping up and down and wriggling like an eel as he came along, with his great hands spread out like fans on each side. Not at all, said the king. He's an Anglo-Saxon messenger. And those are Anglo-Saxon attitudes. He only does them when he's happy. His name is Hayer. He pronounced it so as to rhyme with Mayer. End quote. And I yet again went back a little further than I needed to, because I like that nobody joke. You've probably heard the term Anglo-Saxon before, right? According to Wikipedia, the Anglo-Saxons were a people who inhabited Great Britain from the 5th century. They comprised people from Germanic tribes who migrated to the island from continental Europe, their descendants, and indigenous British groups who adopted some aspects of Anglo-Saxon culture and language." End quote. That sounds pretty cut and dry, right? But it doesn't explain why Lewis Carroll seems to be poking fun at Anglo-Saxons. Now, the annotated Alice sheds a little light when it tells us that in his references to Anglo-Saxon attitudes, Carroll is spoofing the Anglo-Saxon scholarship fashionable in his day. Maybe someday I can find a Victorian scholar <laughs> to explain all of this to us properly. But from what I can glean, making fun of Anglo-Saxon stuff was like the Victorian equivalent of making fun of hipsters. We all love to make fun of hipsters, right? They have handle our mustaches, they know what kind of hops are in their small batch beers. I don't know, they ride old-timey bicycles through Brooklyn. And part of the reason hipsters are ripe for making fun of it is that they seem to think they have a sense of superiority over non-hipsters. They think their ironic, sardonic view of the world is smarter and better than others' views of the world. Now, the Anglo-Saxon movement in Victorian times sounds like it was a, a little more sinister in nature, as part of it was rooted in racism towards Ireland, like hey, let's go back to the old Anglo-Saxon virtues because that's better than mixing with those inferior folks in the rest of the British Isles, that kind of thing. I don't know that racism is the right term, as both the British and the Irish appear to be lily-white to me, but racism is the word I keep reading in regards to Anglo-Saxon attitudes towards the Irish. So, those beliefs were apparently popular in Victorian times, and if you didn't agree with them, it was equally popular to make fun of them. I've read that had a with an A and Hayer are Anglo-Saxon pronunciations for Hatter and Hare. As for specifics, like Hayer spreading his hands out like fans and wriggling like an eel, 
I have no idea why those are considered Anglo-Saxon quirks. I'm sure if we were transported back to Victorian times, we would all understand it and find it hilarious. My apologies for the hipster analogy if that offended anyone. Also, my apologies to any Victorian scholars listening. If you'd like to throw some shade on me on social media, or better yet, reach out and educate me so that I can give a better Anglo-Saxon explanation than the paltry one I just supplied, that would be most appreciated. Much like Nirvana, I'm going to end with all apologies today. Tune in next time for more Looking Glass talk, including a queen comparison, and also the question of age in the Alice books. Just how old is Alice in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass? And more importantly, can we be sure that question has an answer? Speaking of questions, if you've got any for me regarding anything Alice or Lewis Carroll, feel free to drop me a line at heather at aliceseverywhere.com. There's also a contact form you can use on aliceseverywhere.com, or you can find me on Facebook, Tumblr, and Google Plus as Alice is Everywhere, or on Twitter as Everywhere Alice. Stupid Twitter character limits. I'm also on Instagram and Pinterest, but they are not quite as conducive to chatting. If I don't hear from you, talk soon.